0: Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Kreisel, and Diane Duver and I are your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, FM 96.9, and streaming at AM 1290 KZSB. We're it at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara, at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets, and in Montecito's Upper Village. And Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm, coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution.
1: Happy Monday, Neil. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing fine. And uh, what's interesting is that you and I had lunch at the Santa Barbara Club today, and we were so thrilled to be there that today we're going to have a guest who's also a member of the Santa Barbara Club.
1: Exactly. We do. We are thrilled to welcome to the show, Julie Ann Brown, professor and chair of the business department at Santa Barbara City College as well as an entrepreneur and business owner. Julianne, thank you so much for being here with us today.
2: Well, it's an honor to have been included and invited.
0: So uh, the first article we have today is from the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled, Few Lenders Hedged Against Risk of Fed Rate Increases. And a paper was released this week, uh, an academic paper, Uh, that said that only 6% of assets at banks were protected by interest rate swaps, which is a, a form of insurance against rising, or in some cases, if you bet against it, declining interest rates. Uh, What's even more disturbing is that some banks, for example, SVB that went out of business that led the crisis, uh, was hedging about 12% of its portfolio at the beginning of 2021, but only had four-tenths of 1% by the end of 2022. And what you have is either a a situation in which banks did not think that there was a significant risk to their earnings from rising interest rates, or they just didn't want to spend the money. But one of the things that exacerbated the crisis of uh, lower bond values uh, due to lower bond market values due to rising interest rates is the lack of insurance that banks had taken out.
1: Well, I think in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, the really um, infuriating part of this is that they actually sold off their credit swaps or their insurance um, and created profits in the beginning of this year, and then it just made the whole situation that much worse. And meanwhile, the executives of that bank were, you know, collecting big checks for for bonuses. It's it's a it's a real travesty, and. You know, I think those executives should have more to answer to than just a new, a new great job at a different bank. They, they significantly decreased the value of the bank. They harmed the shareholders as well as the depositors. Yeah,
0: um, I don't think uh, these guys are going to get a new job at a bank particularly quickly. So I think we don't have to worry about that. Um, the The next article we have is. Uh, Actually, two articles. Uh, the first article is from the New York Times, and it's entitled Active Stock Pickers Trail Benchmarks in the First Quarter. And the article begins by saying only one in three actively managed large, large cap uh, mutual funds beat their benchmarks for the first three months of the year, the worst performance since 2020. Um, the second article is is more- well-
1: Let's talk about that for a second, the performance devia- deviation in the first half of this year. I think a lot of that has to do as many of the active performers did that much better than their passive indexes in 2022. And oftentimes when there's a bounce, especially when the bounce is um, really just kept to a small number of companies within the S&P. So one of the big, large companies in the U.S., you're always going to have the active management trailing because the bounce doesn't affect them quite as much. And so I don't actually think that article is an accurate representation of active management. And that's from somebody who I'm agnostic, you know, at our firm, we use both active and passive management, but I do think it's worth noting that active management, whenever there's a bounce, like we saw the sell-off of 2022 and how that come back among Apple being a great example, one of the largest components of the S&P 500, you're going to see a slight trail.
0: Yeah, a good point. In fact, the article goes on to say that just three stocks, Apple, Microsoft, and uh, NVIDIA, uh, accounted for 50% of the S&P 500's returns during the first quarter of this year. Um, But the second article goes into this a little more depth and uh, with some historical uh, uh, background. And this is Uh, in the Wall Street Journal this weekend. And it says that um, a a study recently released uh, that took a look at returns for 7,800 stock mutual funds from 1991 through 2020. uh, And they found that only 46% of these funds outperformed the total market over monthly horizons. 39% beat the market over 12 month period and 35% over decades long horizons um and only 24% for their full history um overall uh they found that investors uh, sacrificed a billion uh excuse me 1 trillion dollars in wealth by investing in in fund run by uh, uh stock pickers um and uh, this study took a look at uh or found that half uh, of all stocks um generate a that less than uh half of all stocks generate a positive return over their publicly traded life and that only 4.3% of stocks uh created in the, it, all the net gains in the US between 1926 and 2016 that's a really interesting statistic 4.3% of stocks accounted for uh all of the net gains in that uh 60 year period 70 year period Next interesting, article. yes. interesting go ahead.
1: thing about that is with actively managed stocks, I'm not sure if you can do it that way, because if you think about it, it's an active manager, usually you're evaluating that person's philosophy. And when there's a change at the top of the management, it gets harder to track it as the same because it's not the same person actually managing it over that full 60-year period. That's longer than most people's professional lives. And so it is. it is interesting, but I'm not sure it's an apples-to-apples comparison. And I am completely with you that people who put their money in a, an index fund and don't touch it usually do better than those trying to, you know, run around and and, and beat in terms of return. But that analysis to me falls a little flat given just the, the fact that the person doesn't stay the same over that t- same period of time.
0: Yeah, that, that's an excellent point because when you look at mutual fund performance, you don't uh, uh, look at who was actually managing the money and so you know people that jump out of one fund uh, because it didn't do well as their friend at the country clubs fund did they may be jumping into the fund that just lost their portfolio manager so yes you're right uh you're not picking fund managers you're picking a fund and the fund itself really is not necessarily the driver between a mediocre and excellent performance. Uh, the next article was in this Sunday's uh, Wall Street Journal, um, and um, the uh, this article is quite uh, actually funny. It would be funnier if it weren't true, and that is that um, it, it a Form D filing is essentially a, a filing that you can make with the SEC to file for uh, the right to sell an alternative investment, which don't trade in public markets. And as the article points out, it cost $10 to file without any scrutiny whatsoever. Now, the article highlights somebody um, who uh, paid their $10 and uh, disclosed that since February of 2020, this new company uh, controlled $344 billion, which is preposterous. Um, they also uh, said that he, this guy named Patton, uh, collected at least three hundred eighty-seven million dollars in management fees, but neglected to say that uh, has spent much. That the this guy Patton had spent much of the last fifty years, twenty years, in and out of the county jails and state prisons. Anyway, the point of this is, and this sort of goes to a larger extent when you're looking at SPACs, um, the idea that. Anyone can file without scrutiny uh, is something that you really have to be quite uh, an optimist to invest in, as you can make any claim you want and no one really takes a look at it. Next article is, I think, kind of humorous. It's called The End of Faking It in Silicon Valley. And it begins by saying Faking it is over. That is the feeling in Silicon Valley, along with uh, some people. Uh, That uh, basically, it's okay to make all kinds of statements because ultimately things will work out, and if they don't work out, so what? And that sort of laissez faire attitude has been the norm, so, uh, in uh, the custom up in Silicon Valley for years, uh, people were willing to uh, make outrageous statements, uh, in some cases, cover up difficult times because they figured correctly, that their investors wouldn't complain. And that was true. Most of these venture capitalists didn't want to sue people because, A, they thought one day these people would have some good idea, and two, they didn't want to look like idiots. Well, the world has changed. You know, People are now going to jail, uh, and uh, prosecutors are getting much more aggressive. And that, combined with some of the bank failures where easy money may not be so easy to get, m- means that, or at least the article seems to think it means that uh, there will not be such a lack of scrutiny and laissez-faire attitudes towards uh, venture capitalists in the near future. Uh, You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and 96.9, and we'll be right back.
1: Please visit arlingtonfinancialadvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805
0: Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending. Since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender, that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner.
1: And we can be reached at 805-564-1290 or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So if you're just joining us, you're in for a real treat. We have Julianne Brown, professor and chair of the business department at Santa Barbara City College, as well as a business owner. And uh, Julianne, thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you for the invitation. So after graduating from USC, early, I mind you, at age 20, I read here, um, what led you into academia and what
2: made you want to be a college professor? I think I have to go back to my, my, I have two, I had two, they're in heaven now, Uh, two immigrant parents. One was from Tasmania and the other was from Germany. And um, they didn't like school. I'll just put it to you that way. They were not interested in it and I loved school. Uh, And I was very fortunate though, my father's younger brother became a lawyer first in Munich and he didn't like it. So he became an anesthesiologist. So my dad was always going, he had a better life because he was educated. So that was always in my dad's mind. But my dad was a serial entrepreneur, always had a new idea. He was a car mechanic and he could fix and build anything. So I was always listening to my parents, but I wanted to go to school and it was important to me. And it wasn't until I was in seventh grade, I went to Catholic school and, and the nuns were incredible. Um, they I just loved them. So I followed them around and they said, well, you should go to college. Are you starting to think about that even before you go um, to high school? So I was going to, going to go, and I did to an all girls Catholic school. I said, "Well, what's college?" I really didn't understand. So they yeah. began to teach me, and I got really excited about the thought of it. And I thought I could save my parents' money if I graduated early. So, I, I it was my idea. So I took summer classes. I graduated at sixteen, and um, I went to Long Beach State my first year, as I couldn't go to SC until my parents felt I was a little bit older. And I just loved college, I just loved school. I I, I have two masters, I have the equivalent of two bachelors. And uh, one day, I thought, well, if I love school so much, I should be on the other side of the podium, or I'll end up as a professional, you know, Student. <laughs> and no one pays you for that, right? <laughs> No, so that was that was one of the reasons, and also um, I wanted to have a profession. This is before the advent of you know the internet, of course, where you can be an entrepreneur digitally. I wanted a job where I could take my children, my daughters, to school, pick them up, have the summers off, have the holidays off, and I felt being a higher, uh, you know, being a college professor would afford me that opportunity. And it did. So, oh, and how did you end up at USC? Now, were you did you grow up in Germany? I no, I ha- I am a German citizen and an American citizen. Abdul uh, and I'm an undocumented Australian. They'll require I had lived there two years because I get citizenship through both my parents because they were not Americans at the time of my birth. Um, so, no, I grew up in Long Beach and um, And so Long Beach State was close. And I didn't really, the nuns never talked about community colleges. Shame on them. So I didn't even think about going to a community college, which now I know is the best kept secret in education. I could have saved my parents more money. You know, it would have, um, I would have had smaller classes. Long Beach State, there were 43,000 undergraduates. I went 500 girls in all girls school at 16 to like a small city. And how I chose USC is I was not going to stay there. So I was invited to a party on the sorority and fraternity row. And then I thought, well, this was fun. I wonder what the college looks like. And as I tell my students, um, when you decide to go to university, you have to put your feet on the campus because you'll know if that's for you or not, uh, as of one variable anyway. I stepped on the USC campus and it was a love affair and it's continued to be a love affair since then.
1: So you've had, you had many different jobs in your early years from mm-hmm. bank teller, waitress, actor, tour guide. How did those, those different experiences inform you about what
2: are the important
1: characteristics of a successful person?
2: Um, I think. Um, I teach personal development or college success, and the part of it is motivation and allowing the creative self to come out. And my, um, my father said to me, if you fail one class at USC, I don't have the money to have you take it again. And I don't have any money for you to live on campus, so you're going to have to pass all your classes once. And you're going to have to earn enough money for your clothes and everything else. So money motivates. And I don't care what anyone says. It does. I have a theory I developed. There's vocation and occupation. Vocation is vocari for Latin, a call in our work. You know, something that we are, are drawn to. And then we occupy our time in our professions. But boy, if you can love what you do for a living and occupy it, you have both. And I love lots of things, and I never have done any job that I'm not in love with. So in college, I didn't want one 40-hour week job. So I got a job as a bank teller at a few guys. Remember, there you're too young, but there was Security Pacific Bank. So I was bank teller there. I was a secretary for um, the uh, public administration department on campus. I was a waitress at 32nd Street Market. Um, I was 32nd Street restaurant, and I would type my sorority sister's papers because they were procrastinators. I made $5 a page. I got all my work done soon, because I knew I could make money because they'd all be going around, can anybody type my paper? And I go, sure, $5 a page. Birth, <laughs> <love. Beginning>. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> so now tell us what type of, uh, tell us a little bit about the classes that you teach at City College.
2: Well, OK, so I am I'm the senior marketing professor. And so we have a marketing certificate, which is six classes. Uh, there are um, eight classes, six are, or uh, what do you call it, uh, required, and two can come from different areas. And so a lot of our students get degrees in global studies, communication, engineering. And we have a seven-month online program uh, it, three units every, uh, I mean, every five 5 weeks so they can get this. So post-bachelor degree students are a huge market because they get a job and they don't know anything about marketing or business. So the community colleges offer um, saleable job skills and everybody has to have a master's that teaches this and um, you can walk in graduation. So I'm a marketing teacher and that's my first love is to, to help people to be able to tell the stories of of their entrepreneurial or intrapreneurial uh, endeavors. And then I teach personal development, which I love, general business, management. Uh, I'm pretty much, I pretty much can teach, uh, and I have taught finance, but God bless you guys. Marketing people sometimes don't understand Mm -hmm. it. Not that I haven't taken all those classes, but you guys are amazing. All the numbers add up when you do it right. In marketing, somehow there's always problems. (laughs)
0: you're listening to money talk on am 1290 and fm 96.9 and we'll be right back
2: american rivera bank is actually really good offering the loan to small businesses the customer service that really gave it was amazing She actually gave us step by step. She helped me with every single step on the paperwork. She was great. We found a great bank and now we have a great coffee shop. You can
3: bank on American Riviera, we do. American Riviera Bank, bank on better.
0: The organization known as 1805 raises funds for first responders, providing equipment and taking care of those who take care of us. Here's Richard Weston-Smith. The fact is that state and federal and county budgets move very slowly, but first responders' needs move very
1: fast. And often there's this lag where there's a piece of equipment or something that they need that they can't get for two or three years in the budget cycle. So we step in and make it happen. We think the first responders, they sign up for fires and they sign up for car wrecks and so on, but they don't understand how that can affect them after many, many years of exposure to terrible trauma. We provide the funds to provide counseling for, at the moment, to all 750 of the county's firefighters. More first responders, it's a fact, die by suicide than in the accidental line of duty deaths.
0: To learn more about 1805, go to 1805.org,
3: 1805.org. Hi, I'm Layla Ali. I might be undefeated in professional boxing, but there's one problem I can't fight alone. Childhood hunger. 17 million kids in America struggle with it. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to hungry kids. Join me in supporting Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. To help solve hunger in your community and to find your local food bank, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm found that are providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence.
1: So, Julianne, as the chair of the of the business department at City College, you know, can you share with us just how COVID has affected teaching and what if anything or what if any have there been good things that have come out of it and then also you know the the potential negatives that have come out of it
2: so one of the things with business you know we teach saleable job skills so i was mentioning the marketing certificate we put it fully online 10 years ago and online education in the community college system was asynchronous it was meant for working adults that couldn't take classes in a normal time so the notes were all written uh the exchanges were were constant but it was never there was never zoom it wasn't synchronous there wasn't this high flex that was to offer those that worked 40 hours a week off of different schedules a chance to be able to get their prerequisites to go on to another school and they could still earn money or um, at a time that was available. So going online meant very little for my department at all because every marketing class was online and almost all of our finance classes were all online and so were international business. What I got to tell you though is faculty that never wanted to teach online thought they found Jesus as soon as they got online. They decided Zoom Zoom was the answer. They all now think that you know this is the best thing and it's a great thing it's wonderful but it's not for everyone you know it, they want to get rid of asynchronous teaching to a certain extent but they don't understand the market and it's about marketing there can be marketing uh, there can be targets for synchronous asynchronous all of this online education is is really now a, a smorgasbord uh, and i think The fact they all think it's one right way is confusing for for the poor students. Soon you're going to look in our calendar, uh, in our schedule of classes. Asynchronous, high flex. I'm I'm confused. Julianne, will you
1: define those for us? Because you know, before COVID, if I didn't have small kids, that I had to figure out what the what the teachers were talking about: synchronous, asynchronous. What it all actually means in layman's terms.
2: So, uh, asynchronous is uh, it's independent type study that you exchange with each other, but you do it in a 24-hour period. You can go online anytime and do it. Uh, Asynchronous is that your class is going to be live, and your faculty member you have to be live, and you're all in you're all in the class together, you know, in the box. Okay, during those hours, and then you can do some of the other. Uh, the lecture is live and the students have to be with the teacher just as if but they were minor the person
0: yeah it, does it that, is because zoom can be recorded do you think that causes some professors to be a little bit more uh careful cautious about what they say
2: uh i 100% do uh, i think so and um that's going to, all of this is going to come. They, academia really doesn't know what to do with all of this yet, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, are our lectures going to be recorded or are they fully live? Are we going to permit them to be recorded? High flex is where, if I get this right, everybody's in the classroom and your teacher's lecturing, but if you can't be there, you can you can come in from your computer. So that is, the teacher has to be in the classroom, with the students, but if some students can't do it, they can take it from home. So it, it's, I don't know if that helped you with knowing knowing uh, the differences. No, it
1: definitely does. Now, do you find as a professor, there is a, it, that reaching the students in different ways is helpful, or do you find it to be more confusing for them? Do you think the, and when I say that, I don't mean just in the moment, I mean, over learning the material? What what are you seeing making
2: the most sense? That is a really good question. And I'm going to take that a little bit with Neil about how professors feel about things. OK, I, I'm tenured, so I have, um, I have the ability to have academic freedom more than an adjunct faculty member because I have that job protection. So I love teaching online because they can't hide. Mm. You don't get your work done. You have seven days, 24 hours a day. Why didn't you do your work? I I mean, I'm, they can't hide. And I just, you know, when I teach a face-to-face class, some of the students will sit in the back room, you know, they'll try to hide their phone. You do this work by then and there's no makeups because I give you seven days and seven chances in 24 hours. If you were in a face-to-face class, you'd have three hours and maybe you go to DSPS and get help and get double time. It's up to you for your success. And so I, they, they do their work, because I'm on them every second. So it's a lot more work for me, because I, I wanna make sure they do it, whereas they can't hide in the classroom. So that's my perspective as a faculty member. I, I like it, because I get to see they do their work by the deadline, or if they only do half their work, I comment, I go, where's your other comment? So it's like, they get more of me, actually, personally, one-on-one.
0: Did any professors uh, decide to drop out when they were required to do online classes?
2: Um, I don't know, not in our area. I do think what happened was COVID was so sudden that they had, most educators keep their promises that they made a promise to those students. And when we were told March 14th, not to come back on campus, Those teachers were very lost, right? And somehow community, right? As everyone
1: was told that everyone was trying to figure out their next step.
2: I don't think anybody left that I know that I've heard of. They just were lost and went forward like all of us did.
1: So, what has been the perspective of the students? Do you know of what they're feeling in terms of being a Zoom class versus person class and? Are you seeing any differential with their long-term understanding of the materials?
2: Okay, so let's look at our local community, right? So some of my, because so I, I have an introduction, you know, why are you taking online? And some say, well, I live in North County and it's so nice that I I can come, they like to have both. They might come in for one class one day or I can take this class and I don't have to drive, I save money on gas. So I get to hear all their stories, why they like to have options. So I've not had one student say to me they wanted fully on online or fully face to face or fully hybrid. They want to be able to to choose. I'll take a class. Uh, I'll go into City College on Mondays, but I'm going to take uh, another class. So it gives them options they never had before.
0: So so years ago it was years ago it was really difficult to get into a class uh, because. Uh, the uh, uh, the number of students was greater and the chairs were fixed at a certain amount. It, do you allow an unlimited number of students on online classes? Uh, how, how do you deal with overcapacity or uh, under capacity?
2: So at Santa Barbara city college and most community colleges, the CAC or curriculum um, committee, uh, we set how many students are ideal for a class. So we just talked about this in the curriculum committee meeting last week. No more than 50 students is what we want in an online class because we think more than that, um, the student-teacher ratio. Uh, if you don't have student assistance, like most community colleges don't, like universities, that that's enough. So the ideology is um, that most classes that are 35 face to face will be 35 online. Now. One of the things about this is we still give teachers the ability to add more. So the teacher has the right to go over 35, or the right to say, I'm not taking more than 35. But I found out there are classes that are online with over 50. So I assume that's true, too. So some, there are some online classes with 100 students. So I don't know. I guess they've let them in. And and you know the nursing program, the sciences, math, English, uh, a lot of the social science classes are more in demand, in a sense, so they can transfer. Whereas a lot of our classes, again, they want practical skills. So we t- don't tend to get classes with over 70 anymore. And that's face-to-face. That's not online. Our online classes are 35 students each, um, at least in my, my area.
0: You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. The Friendship Center offers an adult daycare program that provides social contact, engaging activities, and a sense of community for our senior citizens. Here's Heidi Holly. It gives me
2: such pleasure to see the activities and the seniors engaged with their peers. And I think that's what's really important about our program is that socialization. Friendship Center offers an adult day program Monday through Friday. For our maturing adults, we are the alternative to being placed in a long-term care facility. The majority of our people have some memory challenges like Alzheimer's and dementia and other health conditions. We're located in Montecito across the street from beautiful All Saints Episcopal Church. Our phone number is 805-969-0859 or go onto our website at
3: Donate stuff. Create jobs. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank. Making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits for use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about.
1: And if you're just joining us, we have Julianne Brown, the chair of the the business department, sorry, I want to say economics, business department at Santa Barbara City College. And so on the break, we were just talking about, you know, what are kind of the unintended positive consequences of COVID? uh, And we're talking about parking. And so, Julianne, you were saying that you know where parking used to be so impacted at City College, it has actually the online or hybrid or flex or whatever we're calling it. Um, the choices have made parking more readily available. And so, you had a bit of a prediction. Do you want to share it on air?
2: So I uh, I know a lot of faculty really do miss face to face, and I I believe that kids that are starting junior high now. They had to go through COVID with elementary school. But, but the younger we are, the more adaptable we can be. But once they get to be face-to-face in junior high with their friends and they get all that and then they go to high school, I think they're going to want face-to-face. I, I, do, I think we're always going to have an option because we want to serve different the needs of different working adults uh, that you know start college. But I do think people will go back to the traditional because they miss the social aspects. Mm-hmm. The clubs and and the ones that are here they're actively involved in clubs uh, and what's interesting there's I go around campus and students that couldn't find a place to study before because we were impacted then they find little cubbies and they're there studying so there's more room for studying and they have their computers and maybe they're doing their classwork if it's asynchronous too right and
1: so you had mentioned that you do primarily the marketing for the for for your department. And so marketing, you know, when I hear that, I think, gosh, it's changed dramatically with Instagram and Facebook and all the social Pinterest, whatever you're on. How does that impact your teaching? And does City College offer programs that help you learn how to, you know, post and, and be a marketer online as well as in the traditional sense?
2: In some of the computer-based classes they'll have, um, or computer application, they'll have a class on, on one unit on how to work the social media ones. In the marketing department, we have social media marketing. We have online and mobile media. Uh, there isn't one class that doesn't talk about social media because it's a marketer's dream. It's a marketer's dream because every product that you may want, now you can find it, however old that product is. Distribution is the best piece, I think, of that social media, oh, you know, all of a sudden you can find anything, you can talk to anyone. Uh, That's great. Um, Promotion, you know, this Instagram and what they pay people, YouTube, it it has really given marketing as a whole, social media marketing, a, a higher status because we serve our customers where they are and we can find them.
1: Absolutely. And so besides teaching, you're also the owner of Santa Barbara Ghost Tours. Tell us about that. It just sounds fun and brings a smile to my face. (laughs)
2: Well, um, I was a tour guide on the Queen Mary, one of my jobs I had in the summer and on the weekends, and I lived at home before I went to S.C., and I felt the Queen Mary was haunted, Uh, so I'm a collector of stories, so when I worked in a little store the first summer, I talked to people and I said, "Do you have any ghost stories?" And the guards told me stories. And when I got to be a tour guide, um, I learned more stories. And so, when my customers were bored, I would tell Queen Mary ghost stories. Then I got written up twice. Julie, you're not—you're supposed to say how aft steering works. Talk about the pistons. I said, "My poor guests are bored." So then I left, and Disney um, came into Long Beach and wanted to start the first Disney Marine Theme Park. So they leased the Queen Mary for three years and they put in the ghost tours, Queen Mary ghost tours, and they used many of my stories. And so I've been a docent at the mission for five years and some of the priests and brothers and older guides told me the funnest stories from the mission. And then I was thinking I would like to, um, I love Santa Barbara history and I wondered if there were any ghosts in Santa Barbara. So I spent nine months and I found out that uh, during the area, uh, dur- during the 1925, or before the 1925 earthquake, our town other than the beach was kind of the wild west. And then Miss Chase um, brought in the Hoffman's prior, a little bit prior to the earthquake to have buildings built to protect older buildings. And then when the earthquake came, she got a law passed. Anything destroyed it had to be built in Spanish colonial revival. So that was 75% downtown. Well, our happy ghosts come from heaven. And, you know, I don't summon the dead or anything like that. They come back and go, wow, this is so much better. We loved it before, but now we really do. So just downtown is the city of Friendly Ghosts. And I have so many stories, and it's locals over five years. First, they come and they want to see what it was like. And then they started sharing stories. And then I have tons of stuff happen on tours. And I never... I didn't have my own ghost story until I was like 27. I'm just a collector or I thought I was, but, um, now I'm, I'm amazed with all our sweet visiting souls.
1: So when you take tours, if I were for our listeners, what does that mean? Like, I always think, Oh, let's do a ghost tour around Halloween. Right. It's in the, it's in the theme, but what actually are your tours? Help us understand that more clearly.
2: So I have two, uh, two types of tours. I have like 157 stories, so there is no way anyone's going to get all of them. So I, I choose my favorites. And I have a wine tour, which is great, Paranormal Pairing. So at 5 o'clock, we go to one of the wineries I belong to down in the Enchanted Zone. That's the Presidio District. We have wine and we tell ghost stories and have wine tasting. Then at 6 o'clock, I give them an hour and a half ghost walk. So all the areas where I have heard ghost stories or my guests have experienced something, we stop and I tell the story. So it's that's the wine tasting one, the paranormal pairing. Wine pairing with paranormal stories. And then the ghost walk. And then the other one is an hour and a half to two hours, really, they're all about two hours. And um, then I take them you know, to the places and tell them the stories again. But what it is, it's the history and the mystery. I'd only gone on one ghost tour in my life and that was in Edinburgh, Scotland, and that was 15 years ago. So this is organic for me having been a docent at the mission and a tour guide on the Queen Mary and a professor, I'm a storyteller. So um, I just tell them, oh, we all know Miss Chase, everyone knows Jin Chow, all of history is Santa Barbara, Chief Yana Nali, you know, all of these wonderful figures of our, our rich and vibrant four eras come to life. And my guests sometimes know more about Santa Barbara when they leave than people that have lived here for a while.
0: How many people do you take on one tour?
2: It depends. Um, I, this is the hardest business in the world to get people to work for. I just want you to know, I've tried. Uh, it, it's, if you want to be an entertainer and just memorize something that won't work for me, you have to have some kind of awe. So I do the tours when I'm available and based on my availability, the numbers are there. So for example, uh, this weekend, I had seven people on a paranormal pairing and then seven people on the regular tour and then i had this gentleman called me up yesterday and he goes oh, i'm going to i'm going to surprise my wife with a ghost tour but i want to pay 125 for your private one i don't want anyone but you and that and i, and I don't care if it's each i said well we're going to go to the pickle room and i'm going to buy you a drink for each of you cuz that is a little bit more than you need to pay so it's just it's a love affair maybe i'm not the best businesswoman but i'm trying right. i just have so much fun mm-hmm. but it oh. is I mean you're
0: you're listening you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9 and we'll be right back with our final
3: segment when you're farming a vineyard you have 180 days to bring about a certain quality for the eventual wine with a bank like American Riviera Bank It's really comforting to have a partner that understands the agricultural landscape. Having people that communicate quickly with us, that are able to be flexible in how we're doing our business on a day-to-day basis has been a real strength in what we bring to our client base. You can bank on American Riviera. We do. American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. The first professional fire department in America was established this month in 1853 in Cincinnati, Ohio. Members of the company received $60 per year, with lieutenants earning $100 and captains $150. Today, while trained volunteer companies perform much firefighting, there are some 66,000 professional firefighters nationwide. Their median annual pay is about $42,000 per year. Profile America is a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau.
0: Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence.
1: So, Julianne, in in addition, you know, a, a question of where we are today from the articles earlier, you know, with our current banking crisis, do you feel that it reveals a gap in the quality of financial management that students are taught today. I realize that you're at the college or you know as a professor, but don't you think much of the failure could be um, perhaps avoided in the future if there was better education on financial management? Oh, Julianne, I think has frozen on our call.
0: I hate when that happens.
1: I know maybe it was the ghosts getting her from all of our ghost talk earlier, but those tours sure do sound like a lot of fun.
0: But I know I, but I can, you know, catch you off the hook. I can, I think I can help and answer that question from my experience at City College. So I think what you were saying is, does um, the, uh, well, ask the question again.
1: So basically, what's happening right now in the banking world where people don't really understand where they're at risk how do do you think education would would make an impact?
0: yeah, it it does. Uh, but one of the interesting things is I've taken a look at studies of financial literacy in high schools, and they've done some, you know long range uh, uh, reviews, and they found that it really doesn't help. It doesn't really stick kids in high school at least uh, or the way it's taught uh, does not really provide for. Uh, more astute financial uh, acumen among high school kids. Uh, But I I do think that uh, financial interest uh, is important. If for nothing else, what I found at City College and and other institutions is that when people learn about the power of compounding interest and how their life will be better off in the future if they put aside some money rather than going uh, on vacation three times a year some money for um uh, savings uh they will end up with uh a better uh, uh retirement so i think that if for nothing else uh financial uh education helps people become uh more financially uh uh independent than they would have otherwise you know people who are young think that they're they're without any risk and everything is cool. Well, you know, financial analysis tends to uh, result in financial learning tends to result in people being a little bit more careful with their money.
1: Absolutely. And and the same in mind, compounding interest is so powerful that when you, when you illustrate it out to people, you can't help but to want to be a part of that.
0: (laughs) Well, it's so funny because when I, uh, have tried to teach, uh, financial uh, planning to high school kids. I, I would say if you if you didn't have a Starbucks every day uh, and you invested that money at 5%, how much would you end up with when you were uh, 65 years old? They're shocked uh, how much. Anyway, uh, Julie is back long enough to say goodbye we lost Julie's connection. It's too bad, but we'll have to have you on again. Thank you so much, Julie, for being a guest. You were terrific. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk, and we'll see you all next week.